Okay, so today we start, uh, I'm really excited. Uh, it's, it's interesting. <laughs> Every time we're doing a topical series, I keep saying to myself, oh, I can't wait till we're in a book study again. And then when I'm in a book study, I'm kind of, you know, and we've been doing it for a year or two or three or whatever, right? Then I start thinking to myself, oh, I can't wait to kind of get into, there's some things I want to explore with my people. And so now we're at that point where we're never, I'm never satisfied, but now we're at a book study. We're going to start the book of 2 Corinthians today. How long will it take us to study 2 Corinthians? Hey, man, you can clap for that. 2 Corinthians, studying the book. How long will we be there? Only Jesus knows. But we will drink from it and drink deeply. Now, I'm really excited. I've been wanting for some time to preach this book because in 2017 and 2018, we preached through the book of 1 Corinthians. And the title for that, the theme of that series in 1 Corinthians was the gospel for the broken, the gospel for the broken, right? That's what we did in that one. So um, this one, I'm telling you, I struggled over having a proper um, theme for this book. I really did. Let me, can I read for you real quick uh, just some themes? Yesterday, uh, David and Austin, I had kind of had a group thread with them. Um, Austin's going to be filling in some sermons uh, here this summer. And um, thus far, when Austin has preached... I've kind of said, Austin, you know, pick something that you've been studying, uh, but, we're, but now I think I've told Austin, I said, hey, how about you actually preach the series with me? So just keep going in Corinth um, in Corinthians. So he's starting to study it. So he and, and David Drees, David was texting me yesterday asking for a theme for this message series, and he, I could not nail it down in my soul, the theme. Not that I haven't studied the book. It's like, what what... What, what is an emphasis that I want my people to walk away that holds true to the text of what the author is trying to communicate? So here's, here's, some of my, here's some of my themes for this book. Weakness is God's playground, right? Weakness is God's workshop. Weakness turns to strength, an open heart and an open life. Loving a church that hurts you. I almost went to that one. Loving a church that hurts you. When ministry is about the glory of God and the good of others, loving more and getting less loved, I thought that might, you know, loving more and getting loved less. The opportunity of weakness, another theme for this book. The missed opportunity of weakness, loving a church that hurts you. A spiritual father's love for his children, fully spent for the church. And then here's what I settled on. Can I have a drum roll? Okay, here's the theme of this series. My series theme for 1 Corinthians was the gospel for the broken, because they were a broken people in sin, a lot of bad things, right? So my title for this series is going to be the gospel for the weak. Not as catchy as the other ones. I really liked weakness, God's playground. I really liked when the church hurts you. Um, but what we're going to see here is the gospel for the weak. You're going to see all over 2 Corinthians this idea of the weakness that Paul has, actually has brought him to strength in God. And his marching orders, his justification for that is the gospel, is the resurrection of Christ. That's our justification. If you feel weak, if you feel weak in life, maybe physically, you'll see that in here. Maybe you feel weak because you've been hurt by people. You'll see that in here. Maybe you're weak because there's people you love who've never opened up to you. Their body may be there, but their soul is nowhere around you. And you feel weak because of it. It's a good book for you, right? Good book. Good book. 
the gospel for the week. That's the theme man after many titles. I sent a lot of these to David and um, Austin yesterday, and I think David's response, what was your response? Like, what did you say? Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant, David. That's why he's a genius. So I'm excited about this series. I want to encourage you to do something. Um, I got told my family that, um, you know, we, as we try to do family devotions, um, you know, that why can't we just use 2 Corinthians um, for a season? Uh, because I would say this. If you've ever been hurt in life, great book, great book. And the thing about this series is if you don't really read this book and get to understand it and get to know what's going on behind the scenes, you'll never see it, right? Because the problem is this is written to, this is written 2,000 years ago to a group of Corinthians who understand, uh, they have a relationship with Paul, right? Paul had been there two times, was about to be there a third time. He's saying that in this book. He had written multiple letters to them. We some say he wrote five letters altogether to Corinthians. Most would say four. We have two of them in here. There's two letters he wrote to them we know nothing about. We don't know anything about them, but we know they were written because it's talked about in First and Second Corinthians. The, the point I'm trying to make is Paul had a lot of interaction with these people. He had sent Titus to them. He had sent Apollos to them. Evidently, more than likely, Peter at one time had been around them. A lot of interaction. A lot of things they knew. And so when you read this book... You have to understand there's a relationship that's going on between Paul and these people. And there's things that, they're, that he's saying to them that if you start to read between the lines, and you only really get it if you study the book as a whole. If you read it and reread this book, you'll start to all of a sudden, the smoke will clear away and you'll start to understand, oh, I can't believe they did that to Paul. I can't believe they said that to Paul. I can't believe they even thought that about Paul. Whoa. They've hurt Paul, but Paul keeps running towards them. Jesus, the church has hurt me, but I don't have to run from the church. I can run towards it. You're going to see that as you study this, but you won't catch it. I don't know if you'll catch it just hearing a message on a Sunday morning, you know, here and there. I think you're really going to have to study this text and get to know it. So that's what this whole message here is about, the gospel for the weak. If you feel weak... Great news, the gospel is the answer. Now, um, time to illustrate and jump in here into this sermon series. Um, the title for today's message is, Who Can Benefit from This Book? So the theme of the whole series is the gospel for the week. Today's message, it's introduction, and we're going to cover the first two verses of our text. And if you're looking for a title, it's, Who Can Benefit from This Book? Who Can Benefit from This Book? Look at the text, chapter 1, verse 1 through 2, and um, actually next week, Austin is going to preach verses 3 through 11, right? There's nothing like getting thrown into a sermon series where you're forced by the text. This is why I love preaching through the Bible. I love being told what to do sometimes. Amen? I just wanted to see if you'd agree to that. Some guy's wife just looked at him and just said, I don't think that's true. Verse 1. Let's stand in reverence to the reading of God's word, God's holy word. What a privilege to have a copy of God's word in our hand. It is worthy of reading. It is worthy of our attention. It should receive first priority in our life, in our home. It's worthy enough to, to 
shut off our phone during this time or to turn it in airplane mode to where the Word of God is center stage. We need this. Chapter 1, verse 1, Paul says this, Paul, an apostle of Jesus, Christ Jesus, by the will of God. And Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are throughout Achaia, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Can I ask God's blessing over this message, this series? Lord, we really do need your help for this series. I'm insufficient. Um, Those who will preach it with me are insufficient. We are way too weak, and yet you are way too strong. We're so thankful for that. And now we need your help. We need your help as we start to look at this text and we start to understand the background. Even as we look in verse 1 and 2, would you help us to understand the heat behind the pen here? What's actually going on in the background? May we capture it. And as a people who are sinners, a part of a congregation full of sinners, may we be able to trust and know that we are redeemed people and there's a pathway to forgiveness and there's a pathway that we don't grow bitter but better. Let us embrace what we see on our text. Every bit of weakness, every bit of hurt. Would you protect us from our American excuse of the church has hurt me, so I, I've left it, or if I'm a part of it, it's got my body but it doesn't have my soul. I'm protecting myself from friendships because of it. So God, help us in this. May we see a different side to the glory of your name. And God's people said, amen. So there was this TV show uh, back in the 90s when we were watching MTV when I was a teenager. MTV was huge. I don't know if it's huge anymore. I feel like there's way too many television shows to even know what's what nowadays. But back then, you only had a handful of, sh- of stations you could watch, and MTV was one of those. Um, do y'all remember? Any of y'all remember MTV days? All right, let me say this. I want my... Y'all remember that, right? So there was one show that came on, and it was during my latter... High, uh, early high school years. It was called The Real World. You remember The Real World? I think they had several seasons after that, but I watched some of the original ones. I remember the one that really put them on the map was the one in San Francisco with a guy named Puck. Anybody remember Puck? All right, we got a couple people that remember the days of The Real World. And here's what The Real World was. You put real people together in a place, in a community, right? In one house, and they, and they really staged it to put these all were people who weren't agreeable with each other in any normal life setting, right? And you, and you put intentional people who were antagonists, and then you just turn the cameras on and let it spin. And boy, did it ever spin. It, and it was like something, you, it, was a, it was a live soap opera. It wasn't a scripted soap opera. It was a live soap opera. You could see it go down week by week. It was so attractive. You could see the rawness of it. You could see the emotion and the hurt and all the drama that was going on. And people loved it. Now, why did I tell you that story? Because that, 2 Corinthians, it is raw. It is the Apostle Paul unveiling his soul, being honest with what the Corinthians have been thinking, bringing love to them, correction to them. And if there's ever anybody in the history of the church 
Who was hurt by the church? This guy. It was Paul. And what I want you to notice through this series is Paul doesn't run from them, but runs towards them. Not from them, but runs towards them. Paul doesn't grow bitter. He grows better. And they hurt him seriously. They really hurt him. I'm excited as we go through the series. I'm excited that hopefully, Lord willing, you'll do some reading on your own and start to really see an understanding of the text. But Paul hangs in there with these people for the glory of God and their good. He doesn't give up on them. And he does more than what we do sometimes. We sometimes, even if we give up on people and give up on the church and give up on relationships, we kind of say to ourselves sometimes, well, I've been hurt, so I'm backing off. Or we'll do this with our kids sometimes. Well, I've been hurt by my kids, so I'm going to back off. Paul doesn't do that. He considers the Corinthians his children in the faith. And he keeps pressing forward to them for the glory of God and their good. The key for it is that he grew bit better and not bitter. The key was forgiveness. Oh, yeah. It may, may sound so simple, but you know what our biggest problem in life is? Our biggest problem in life is forgiveness. Is not forgiving as Jesus has forgiven us. How do you know you've forgiven somebody? You no longer replay in your mind what they've done to you. And when you have a conversation with them, you don't pull open the file drawer and keep replaying what they've done to you. How do you know you've forgiven somebody? Not because you've just only said, I forgive you, which that's a part of it, but you actually aren't actively stewing and regurgitating and reviewing it up in your mind. Instead, you are reviewing and rehearsing the gospel message. That's forgiveness. The freedom and power of forgiveness will release you. The freedom and power of forgiveness will keep you in a position where you never protect yourself like so many people do. I'm so surprised. People get hurt by the church and they act shocked by that. But what did you think would happen when you put a bunch of strangers in one place with vastly different ideas? What do you think was going to happen? The real world. That's exactly right. Just hopefully none of us are puck. Two people probably saw that show, the ones who laughed, right? So now this is a very personal, this introductory stuff, this is a very personal letter by Paul. It gets very personal. I want to flip through a couple different passages. Today is an overview, setting this up, and we'll cover the first two verses. An overview. Look at chapter six. I just want to point out a couple things. This letter is super personal. I'm really encouraged by that. He doesn't protect himself inwardly from these people that have hurt him. Chapter 6, verse 11 through 12, Paul says this. And, and as we go through the series, you'll be astounded that he would say verse 11 through 14 when you get to know more things. Chapter 6, verse 11, he says this. Our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is opened wide. You are not restrained by us, but you are restrained by your own affections. He says, our heart's still open wide to you. It's you that's closed your heart off to me. Very personal. Chapter 7, verse 2 through 4, he says this. Make room for us in your hearts, Corinthians. We wrong no one. Now, why would he say we wrong no one? Because they were accusing him falsely of doing so much wrong that wasn't even true. Have you ever been falsely accused of something that wasn't true? You ever been there before? Did that not make you just want to run from those people and go, I'm going to put myself as far away as I can from you because I don't want that trash in my life. Paul says... Now, let me correct you. Let me pursue the relationship, bring correction. It, you know, this is a false accusation, but open your heart to me. I'm going to open my heart to you. So he says this, we've wronged no one, verse 2. We've corrupted no one. We took advantage of no one. 
Why would Paul say this? Because that's what they, some of the things they were accusing him of. Paul, the guy who planted the church. In a little, little bit, I'll tell you some of the things he did for this church. They're accusing him of some things. With, with, with all amounting to a bunch of hearsay. We took advantage of no one, he says. Look at verse 3. I do not speak to condemn you. Look at that. He'll bring some correction to him, as you'll see in, in this whole letter. But he didn't do it to condemn them. He says in verse 3, For I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. To die together and live together. I, this is going to be a fun book. Especially if in your heart and soul... It's been this idea of like the church keeps hurting me, the church keeps hurting me, people keep hurting me, the family keeps hurting me, people keep hurting me. It's going to be a great book. If you're a person who's watching online um, and you're bitter towards the church, great. If you're bitter towards people in life, great book. If there's ever somebody in our study who you would go justified, Paul's justified on punting on those people for the rest of his life, it's Paul, and he doesn't do it. It's going to be a fun book for our souls. Verse 4, he says this, Great is my boldness to you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I've been filled with comfort. I'm overflowing with joy in all our affliction. Paul gets falsely accused and criticized for all the afflictions that he goes through in his ministry. That's one of their accusations against him, right? But yet he says, hey, <laughs> this has resulted in me being stronger in the Lord, and I have nothing but comfort and joy. In fact, Austin will tell you more about that next week. So I want to do a couple things. Let me help you understand kind of how this came about, this personal relationship. Um, Hannah, do we happen to have the second Corinthians and, uh, I'm sorry, second missionary journey, third missionary journey? Okay. I guess the big one's not working. So for those of you who, have, who, who can see this, if you can't see this, go ahead and get that prescription filled, right? Um, <laughs> go ahead and go. So this is his second missionary journey. And I want you to follow the red line here, and you can kind of see where Paul, he leaves Syria, this region, and then you can kind of see where he tracks. By the way, he's revisiting churches that he administered to, right? So people not only need salvation, but they need discipleship. He's continually revisiting with his disciples. He makes his way from Asia, and then you can see him kind of cross over into what's called Macedonia and Achaia. Now, in Achaia, right here, Here's where Corinth is, right? That's right there. That's Corinth. Now, Corinth is really situated on a really narrow isthmus. And what happened is, is you were a sailor and you had cargo, you could do one of two things. You could either go around this, which was a treacherous way to go, or there was a little isthmus here where they had a large amount of slaves and they would help you actually get your boat across land so you could skip this treacherous pathway and actually go right through Corinth here and you could continue on. So you could either, if you were going from the Aegean Sea and you wanted to get over to Macedonia, you could go all around this treacherous route, or you could go through Corinth, and after a little stretch of land with the use of a lot of slaves in the city of Corinth, you could get your boat over this narrow way, then back onto the water, and, and on you go. Now, as a result of that, this very cosmopolitan city had a large population and it had a lot of debauchery. If you read 1 Corinthians, you'll start to understand. So that's the city of Corinth. Now, um, what's, what's interesting is that while... And now if you could throw up the third missionary journey. 
So on the second journey, he plants that church. On the third journey, he revisits. You can see him revisiting churches again. On his third journey, he spends a lot of time. By the way, he was in Corinth for a year and a half. A year and a half he was in Corinth originally, his first visit when he planted the church. Now he's in Ephesus here. This is the third missionary journey. And while he's in Ephesus, great ministry is happening. He was there for quite a while. Um, But while he's in Ephesus, he's hearing about things that are going on in Corinth, and it's not a good situation. And what happens is he eventually makes his way back to the Corinthians, and he'll make a third missionary visit, right? But before he makes that visit, he writes a letter to them that we don't have today, a letter that's instructing them. He writes 1 Corinthians that's instructing them about the immorality. He's correcting things that go. Somewhere in this, he makes a second visit to them. Now, Acts doesn't show us where this happens, but some believe that somewhere in this long stay in Ephesus, he bumps over there and sees them and comes back. That's a long story and a lot of historical kind of look. But what we notice is this. One of the things he told them on his second visit is that when I leave Ephesus, I'm going to come to you, come back up and visit the church of Macedonia. Then I'm going to come back to you, and then I'm going to leave and go to Jerusalem. What happens instead is great persecution happens in Ephesus. You can read that in Acts 19. And then in, instead of going right to them, because it was a sorrowful visit and the last letter, he bumps up here to Macedonia instead, sends Titus down there to check in on them, then sends Titus to send Um, you know, then sends this letter to them. But here's what I want you to notice some things. In this whole kind of outcropping that you're going to discover in this book, Paul planted this church, has a second visit to this church, eventually makes a third visit to this church. Paul writes a letter that we don't have today, but he writes it. You can see in 1 Corinthians 5, 9, he wrote a letter to them before the 1 Corinthians letter. Writes the 1 Corinthians letter, then, then makes what looks, then makes a, a third letter that we don't have. It's called the letter of sorrow. When you read 2 Corinthians 7, it's a letter that makes them sorrow, many of them sorrow into repentance. Then he writes a fourth letter, which is this letter. So Paul does a lot of writing to them, a lot of ministry. He's familiar with them. He has given a lot to them in time, attention, heart, prayer. He is concerned about these people. And yet, these people hurt him. Concerned, sacrificial, yet these people hurt him. Have you been hurt by the church? Man, I think that's a common thing that I hear a lot nowadays. Like, I've been hurt by the church. I've been hurt by the church. And true enough, can a church hurt you? Sure, absolutely. I mean, what did you expect when you got in, you know, when you got in a place where there's a bunch of sinners? Now, I'll tell you this. majority of the time when people say, I've been hurt by the church, a lot of times what, what, they, what they're failing to realize is it wasn't the whole church that hurt them. It might have been a person or two. And because it's more convenient to bump out a relationship and just go somewhere else or not go at all or not involved at all, that's what people do. When actually God calls you to actually go to those people, get this reconciled, use, use all the instruments of grace of getting extra people to help until there's a reconciliation that happens in the relationship. But most of the time, that's not what people do. They get hurt and they just leave. And then they walk around like wounded dogs for the rest of their life saying, the church hurt me. That sometimes is what happens. Now, if you read this, when you read this book, you start to understand that that really could have been 
Paul's excuse to say, if he would ever say, well, the church just hurt me. But you don't find Paul doing that in this. So that's the way it works with us sometimes. Now, sometimes when a church is hurt, they really actually hurt. I mean, you can, you, there's examples of that. We see that, sure. But a lot of times it's usually an individual. And our proclivity is to instead look at the whole church with just a couple of people. And by the way, here's what also is really interesting about our kind of church experiment. We'll say the church hurt us. But do you realize the church is constantly evolving and revolving? There's new people that get added to the church. And so what's really kind of always been puzzling, I've been in ministry almost uh, two, and a half, two and a half decades now, is that you'll see new people come to the church who haven't been discipled well yet. Um, they haven't grown the Lord yet. And they'll do something that's offensive to somebody who's been there for a while. And then they'll just disappear. And then they'll go, the church hurt me. And then my next response is, wait a minute. Do you not realize there are people who kind of have some problems who haven't worked out that sanctification. Actually, you punted on somebody who actually needed you to lean into them. When you read this book, you're going to find out there's a lot of immaturity in these Corinthians. And it's not like it was, Paul hadn't been doing things with them for a long time. A lot of times we only like people if they have instant sanctification. Like, man, I don't have to, I I say something to you once and that's it. That's not the way it works here. Paul has repeatedly invested himself in a people that were difficult. So if you've been hurt by the church, this is a good book. Paul was hurt by the church. Paul was hurt by them. But he didn't run from them. He went towards them. He didn't close off his heart and his life. He had an open heart and open life. I read to you some of those scriptures. He makes a third visit we're going to discover eventually. And in fact, because Paul hangs in there, he actually gets ministered to back by some of those people. Do this. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I just want to, I'm giving you kind of an overview of the, the book. So, if you go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 7, they, some, many in the church had repented of how they had treated Paul. Um, they had repented of it. And it says in verse 7, And not only by his coming but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. So Paul's in Macedonia here at this point in the third missionary journey, and he sends Titus. Titus gets report. He, he sends this letter, and his report back from Titus is, man, they've repented. They're, they're, some of them have actually repented. Some haven't, but some have repented. And Paul says, this rejoice, I'm, I'm so thankful. This actually has done something for me. Look at verse 9. Actually, look at verse 8. He says this, though I cause you sorrow by my letter, that was the third letter, the one right before 2 Corinthians, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter caused you to sorrow, though only for a while. It's kind of this idea of sorry, not sorry. Like I sent a letter, made you sorrowful. I'm sorry, but not sorry. You started to repent. Verse 9. And now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but you were made sorrowful to repentance. For you were made to have a godly sorrow so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. Then as you keep reading, if you keep reading, you'll discover that he talks about being refreshed by their repentance. And get this, if he had punted on the church already at this point, he would have never experienced that comfort. There is nothing like hanging in there with God's people walking through the difficult processes of repentance and reconciliation that is terribly hard 
then experience the beauty and glory of the gospel as that relationship has potential to get reconciled. Paul says, I was refreshed by that. You want to know why sometimes I don't think we're refreshed? Because we punt too early. We have, it's, I'm telling you, it's, it's like a disease, this idea of, well, the church hurt me, I'm done with it. Or the church hurt me, I'll still go to it, but I'll hold my heart far from it. I'll protect myself so, so no one can ever hurt me again. You don't find that in 2 Corinthians. In fact, he says, I'm going to keep going towards you. And I'll speak grace to you. I'll treat you as saints. I'll bring admonishment. You know, one of the things that when people say the church has hurt me, and they, they either give up on it completely or they hold themselves far back from it, you know, from an open heart. A lot of times, let's just be honest, I don't think we even realize we don't look at our own sin. You know, the Bible tells us in Matthew 7, here's what we actually need to do. If you're going to take the speck out of your brother's eye, does anybody know what we got to do first? Take the log out of our own eye. I've been in ministry for a while. I'm telling you, take it from a pastor's heart. Majority of the time when people say the church has hurt me, they're not willing first to look at the log in their own eye. Now listen, it's not that I, I'm up here saying, um, let go and let God have his wonderful way. Like, it doesn't matter what people have done to me. I'll just ignore it and, you know, don't worry, be happy. No, Paul doesn't do that here. He will, he addresses it and take, takes pains in his addressing of things. So I'm not saying that. That's why the scriptures wouldn't tell us to take the speck out of our brother's eye if there wasn't something God wanted you to do to try to redeem that relationship. The point first is, We'll never have the grace and humility to actually work towards reconciliation if we don't first see our, the bigness of our own personal sin. Most of the time, I'm telling you, when people say the church hurt me, sometimes they don't even take a good, full, robust look at their own rebellion before God. And, and sometimes it's hard because a lot of our rebellion isn't on the outside. It's all inward stuff. And inward stuff is hard to see. But I'll tell you this. How do you know something's wrong inward? If we, towards the bride of Christ, grow bitter and not better, friend, it's time to look at the log. It's time to look at the log. So people punt on the church. They punt on relationships. They punt on family relationships. In fact, Memorial Day weekend, this is a lot of times where people go and see family, right? They'll travel, they'll see, or they'll cook out tomorrow. How many of us in here have relationships that we have severed? because they hurt us too much. And, and really, the, the deal might be this. Did we ever first look at the log in our own eye? Or maybe those relationships, instead of even looking at the log in our own eye or not even trying to tempt the speck in their own eye, we've just punted on completely when actually God could have given a pathway to redemption. So there's this deal where if you've been hurt by people, if you've been hurt by the church, this is a great letter because Paul all over has been hurt and he will constantly defend himself over and over and over in this entire book. And yet he never gives up. He actually says, my heart is open to you. Would you open your heart to me? Let's not end this. I'm going to keep going with you. I love you because Christ loves the church. You're the bride of Christ. And I love the bride in all the ways that she is. Now, for those of you that are married, what if you walked in tomorrow morning to your bride and you said, uh, I love you, but I don't like you. How do you think that's going to go? Do you think she'll be like, oh yeah, I get it. You, you love me, you don't like me, right? I get it, you know. That wasn't Paul. 
Paul's like, I love you, and I like you, and I'm going to keep opening my heart towards you. Now, people say this all the time. Well, I, I got to protect myself, Nick. I got to protect myself. I, I got to protect myself. If we would focus on forgiveness as much as we focus on protecting ourselves, I think God might actually do something in our life. I'm telling you, please reject this silly idea of life is all about setting up boundaries around my life where no one can ever hurt me. Listen, there are boundaries that get set for the glory of God and the good of the other person. That can happen. But by and large, here's what I find. Most people are listening to quack psychologists who tell them, and this is their, this is their counsel to you almost right off the bat, friend, you need to set up boundaries. And then people set up so many boundaries, no one can even jump over it. No one can get in, no one can get out. What if we actually, instead of setting up so much boundaries, actually set up a lot more repentance? What if we set up a lot more looking at the log in our own eye? What if we set up a lot more, okay, I'm looking at the log in my own eye, I'm going after my brother, my sister, I want to win them back. What if we start to do that? What if we start to plead, open your heart back up to me? Change things. Now, let's do this. I want to... Let me just say one thing, and then I want to look at verse 1 and 2 as we kind of close, as we'll close up here in just a minute. Let me tell you some of the ways they were offensive to Paul. <laughs> I'm just telling you, it is ridiculous what these Corinthians were doing to him at this point. Remember, he'd already been near him, been to him twice, wrote three letters. I mean, he'd already sent emissaries back to them. He'd sent Apollos, he'd sent Timothy, he'd sent Titus, uh, Peter at one time, more than like, I mean... There was so much ministry and care as a father for them. And here's some of the things that they did. So one time, if, when we get to chapter 1, you're going to see this idea that, um, that he originally told them that he was going to leave Ephesus and come right to them uh, as he ended his third missionary journey, go up to Macedonia, come back to them, then head to Jerusalem with an offering for the saints. Instead, he goes a different way, right? And then here's what they say. Can't trust your word then, Paul. Like, you changed your travel plans, and all the ministry you've done to us doesn't matter. You changed your plans. How flaky is that? Now, these are the things that they do to him in this letter. One of the things they also do to them is they, they got convinced by these so-called super apostles who were false teachers. And basically, the false teachers taught the Corinthians that if a man's serving God, he'll be wealthy and healthy and prosperous. Everything, that glit, everything around him that, that will turn to gold, basically. And then Paul is suffering. You'll see in the, this text of Scripture of 2 Corinthians, Paul's suffering a lot. In fact, in Ephesus, uh, persecution happened. That's why he had to leave Ephesus. And so Paul has to defend himself to these Corinthians. The Corinthians basically go, well, you change your plans and you're getting persecuted. And if God was really with you, Apostle Paul, you wouldn't be persecuted. If God was with you, everything that glitters would turn to gold in your ministry. Now, I don't know about you, but Paul had given so much to these people. At this point, I think as a pastor, it would have been tempted to go, bye, you know, like, see ya. That is silly that you let, you let all this ministry I've done to you and over something small and flaky, bye. But Paul doesn't do that. Why? Because of the work of the gospel. And he grows better, not bitter. The church hurt him, but he doesn't give up on the church. The church hurt him, and he doesn't withhold his heart from the church. Man, it's such a good book. 
Some other things they did. Paul had already done ministry to them. When you get into chapter 3, basically they call in his credentials. It's kind of the equivalent of doing this. I've now been here over 10 years. And it would be this, like, okay, you've been in this church for 10 years with me, and then one day you get up and you go, I just don't know about Nick. I think I need to kind of see his credentials for doing this. And, uh, you know, I could have, like, married you, buried you, counseled you, done all this stuff, and then you hear one little rumor, right, on Twitter, and you're like, hmm, I don't know about Nick. So Paul has to defend in chapter 3 his credentials. He has to defend and go like, okay, yes, I'm legitimate. Now, he's not defending it because he's offended. He's defending it for the, for the glory of God and their actual good. By the way, I'm looking at that clock, and I'm just noticing that hand has not moved because I got real excited just now thinking like, man, I'm way ahead. Done. When you look in chapter 6, Paul reveals that they treated him with suspicion, looked at him as an evildoer. They even, I read for you earlier in chapter 6, they withheld affection from him. They were withholding affection from him. Hey, you think you've been hurt by a church? What about this guy? You think you've been hurt by your kids? What about this guy? They, in chapter 7, there's the thought that he's corrupt. In chapter 8, he's gathering a offering for the poor saints in Jerusalem. And just in case you don't know this, and you'll see this in the, the, the text, when he was at Corinth, how much did they pay him? Anybody know? Nothing. Nothing. Never took a dime from him. Right? He tent made. He had other support from other churches. He never took a dime from him. And yet, when you read chapter 8 and 9, you start to get the idea of they're kind of concerned, can an offering go with Paul? Like, you know, so Paul has to lay out his credentials of who's going with him as well to offer this, to bring this offering to the poor saints in Jerusalem. A man who never took a dollar. It would be as if you had a preacher who's never been paid. By the way, y'all have paid me, right? I mean, I am well fed, right? It's like you got a pastor who's never been paid, and then you're going like, hmm, I don't know if we should send you down to Mexico this summer and bring this offering to Ray because I don't know if we can trust you. That's the kind of deal. You think you've been hurt by the church and hurt by people. Paul was. And Paul grew better, not bitter. He never gave up on them and still continued to give his heart. He had to defend why he, he had to defend to them why he had suffered so much for Christ for the glory of God. In fact, they even said something to him that he didn't do enough mir- as an apostle. He could do miracles and signs, and he did some of those. They even accused his ministry and accused him, saying, mm, I don't think you did enough of those. I think we need to see more. I think you withheld from us, Paul. You think you've been hurt by the church. Paul's been hurt by the church, and he never gives up on them. Now, Here's the, here's the reason why in the end, Paul never gives up on them because the, and this is the theme of our book, this is the gospel for the weak. And what you're going to discover in this book is whenever you're weak, you're in a great position. You are in God's playground. You are in God's workshop. Whenever there's weakness, it's an opportunity to rely on him and receive his strength. So when people have hurt you, that's an opportunity. That's an opportunity to go, Okay, Jesus, a holy God forgives sinful man and then not only does that, but puts his righteousness on their account and then keeps relationship, restores relationship 
and continues communing with them until he brings them to glory. Based on that merit, I am going to keep going towards this person. That's why he doesn't give up. It's the good news of the gospel. You know, most of our whole life revolves around this idea of, I can forgive you when I emotionally feel like it. That's a lie. In fact, when you look in chapter 2, you discover that one of the ways that Satan attacks the most is simply through unforgiveness. You'll discover that in this series. Now, look in chapter 1, verse 1. I want to point out a couple things that I think are pretty interesting. Man, done so dirty by this church and continues to go after them. I'm so excited for you to read this on your own. I hope you will, especially if you're nursing a wound of bitterness. So first I want to see this. Um, Paul. Paul rehearses his apostleship in this salutation. Look in verse 1. Verse one. If you're a note taker, kind of have four points here, you might be thinking to yourself, dear Jesus, he's just now getting to the points? That was all introduction? Yes, but it, it, we won't be long. Lord willing. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and, what does it say? Of Jesus Christ by, what does it say? Now, he had said this kind of phrasing in Romans, 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, Colossians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. So it's not uncommon for him to say that he's an apostle and put his apostolic authority on the front end. Oddly enough, he doesn't do that on the front end in Philippians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians and Philemon. And he only spent about three weeks in Thessalonians when he planted it. So here's what we do find. He's got to assert his apostleship. That's a normal thing. But do you sense some of the heat behind it? Because when you read this letter, his credentials of being an apostle are being put on doubt. So there's a special heat I want you to understand as he even writes this. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. So he rehearses his apostleship. Now, here's the thing. Paul defends himself, not as much because of personal hurt, but for the glory of God and their good. Because they must still trust that he's an apostle and has something for them. So even though he defends himself, it's actually not for personal exaltation. It's for the glory of God and their good. When are you ready to actually go after somebody for reconciliation? When the reason for doing that reconciliation is the glory of God and their good. A lot of times when we try to do reconciliation and it goes bad, the reason it goes bad is because we come all puffed up. We just want to have an avenue to just spill our guts on them in such a way that maybe they'll hurt as bad as we've hurt. Yeah, no wonder that hasn't gone well for you. But we don't know anything about that. Point number two. So first he rehearses his apostleship. Right. Then number two of our outline, Paul responds to them as church members. So notice this, he says this. To the church of God, which is at Corinth with all the saints who are in, who are throughout Achaia. Notice, at the, we're in still verse 1, the middle of verse 1, to the, what does it say again, church? Church of God. I find that interesting. He calls them the ecclesia, the, the assembly, the church of God. Were they completely acting like perfect saints? Nope. You know people that say, well, the church has hurt me, I'm done with it. I, my next question would be, well, have you ever hurt the church? Have you ever considered that 
You've done the same thing? Have you ever considered it? Paul doesn't punt, punt on them. He, he says, you are the church of God. He's talking to all the Corinthians and all the churches throughout the region of Achaia that the city of Corinth is in. So first, so we see this. He responds to them as church members, as people of the church of God, which is at Corinth. I love that. He starts off not bitter at them. He starts off recognizing that you belong in the body of Christ, warts and all. People always think you can only be a part of a perfect church. If you find a perfect church, please don't join that church. You'll be the first person that ruins it. Church of God. After all the trash they've put him through, church of God. He responds to them as church members. Point number three, Paul responds to them as Christians. Look in verse, uh, continue to look in the middle of verse one. He says, the church of God which is at Corinth with all the, what does it say? Saints. Now that word, saints, we have the Greek word hagios, which means holy ones. Holy ones, set-apart ones, right? When you become a follower of Jesus, you become a set-apart one. You become a saint. Although you may not be perfectly a saint, you are, in the grand sense of heaven, justified, declared righteous. You are a saint before the throne room of God. When I became a Christian at age 16, God put his righteousness on my account. I am a saint. I am now living out my life, acting more saintly, setting myself apart from, from sin and unto God. So he calls them what they positionally are, although practically they're not acting at times much like saints. But he calls them that. He starts off in this salutation not different from all the other salutations to a church who had done him super dirty, and he recognizes. He doesn't think the worst of them. He thinks about the best in Christ, right? He thinks about the merits of Christ. I think sometimes when we're trying to actually look at people who profess Christ and are part of your body, like, we have to remember it's Christ and them the hope of glory. We, we won't give up on people so easily who are in Christ if we recognize the power of God that lies within all believers, the power of the resurrection, the power of the ability to repent based on the finished work, based on the, based on the presence of the Holy Spirit in those people. So he responds to them as Christians. I love at the very beginning he calls them the church of God. He calls them saints, not only those locally, but all those in Achaia, the whole region. There's more than just the Corinthian church he's talking to. Now look at verse 2. So we have, if you're a, a note taker, you like points, if you're a good Baptist, right? He rehearses his apostleship. He responds to them as church members. He responds to them as Christians. And because I have a little Baptist rebellion... The last one doesn't alliterate the same. Paul's desire for them, number four, is better than they deserve. Paul's desire for them is better than they deserve. Look at verse two. Grace to you. <laughs> oh, you'll know whether you've grown better or bitter about what, how someone has hurt you if that can be your first response. Grace to you. That word grace is that the, it's this word charis that means the unmerited favor of God. Grace towards you. This is a person who is not bitter, who all the problems, he sees the weakness of his life as opportunities. He sees the conflict as opportunities. He sees the false accusations as opportunities. Grace to you. 
grace to you, grace to you, grace to you. In fact, the Bible promises us that if, if our speech in Colossians 4, 6 will be seasoned with grace, we'll know how to answer every man. You know sometimes why you don't know, we don't know what to say in those difficult times of life? Because grace is not running through our veins as God has designed it. Grace to you. So in grace, we get heaven. In mercy, we don't get hell. Notice he's saying grace to you. He wants more than just mercy. He wants more than just the forgiveness of their sin. He wants grace. By the way, grace is good for everything. We don't have time, but if you were to look at Titus 2, 11 through 12, the grace that saves you is the same grace that sanctifies you and conforms you into his image. It's always grace. He says grace to you. I mean, you can't really deal with the hurt that God's people might have done towards you or unless you can start to actually see them through the eyes of grace. And notice not only grace, but he says in verse 2, and what from God? Peace. And peace from God. He says that the peace that you've experienced at salvation, the peace of God that exists in your life now, oh yes, God means for us to have peace. We don't have time. Maybe we'll get to it more in this sermon series, but if you were ever to read Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 9, you can see that God does promise us peace. We actually can have peace from worry and anxiousness, right? We can't have it. So he says, I want you to have peace from God, from our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's what people say. Nick, come on. This is the Apostle Paul. We never, I never saw Jesus on the Damascus Road I never had any of those things. I was an apostle. Unfair. Blah, 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 blah. Whatever. You've been like Charlie Brown's teacher to me this whole entire time because you're talking about the apostle Paul, right? Good. Good response. Now look back at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and what does it say? Was he an apostle? No. So Paul puts on display and says grace and peace to you, church of God. And guess who he's putting in the salutation with him? Who? Timothy. Oh, by the way, if you read about Timothy, this was a guy who was riddled with fear and timidity. So we're not dealing with a perfect dude, right? We understand he's a very flawed pastor, right? I know what that's like. And yet he's saying Timothy's right here with us. So don't think because it's Apostle Paul, this is only, oh, you got to be some super Christian to do any of this. No, timid, shy, fearful, scared, afraid Timothy that Paul has to write a whole letter to to help encourage this young man. Yeah, he's talking to all of us. So I'll end with this. Look down in um, chapter 1, verse 8 through 11. I'm not stealing any of uh, Austin's thunder next week. Man, I'm so excited. Um, Austin already told me some stuff yesterday just in his study. He pulled up some things that I've never heard of before. So I'm so excited. Um, Man, I'm so excited. I'm so excited to to have him preach a couple of these messages with me on this. So verse um, 8, look what Paul. Remember, Paul's been through affliction, affliction in Asia. Notice how he handles the weaknesses. For we not want you to be unaware, brothers, of our affliction which came to us in Asia. This is talking about Acts 19, the stuff he went through in Ephesus, right? Third missionary journey, where he goes to Macedonia and comes to them, right? 
that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength. You ever felt like that? You ever had this, you ever had people say, God will never put on you more than you can ever take? That's a lie. Now, God will always give you a way of escape from sin. That's the promise of 1 Corinthians 10 13. With temptation, there is a way of escape. But people take 1 Corinthians 10 13 and go, hmm. God will never put more on you than you can take. And I would say, that's a lie. God will always give you a way to escape from sin, but he may put more on you than you could ever take. He may put you in a position of weakness that you think you just can't survive. Look what Paul said. That we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even to what? That sounds pretty far. That sounds to me a lot more than God will never give you more than you can ever take. Really? Because Paul's like, I thought we were going to die. We did. Verse 9. Indeed, we have the sentence of death within ourselves. You ever been in a car wreck? And then as that car wreck happened, like after you're like, I'm probably going to die here pretty soon, right? I had one time, I spun out of control across four lanes of traffic on Highway 635 in Dallas. And I remember midway thinking, Okay, here we go. Like, you know, obviously nothing happened. I'm here. I thought, I'm dead. And look what he says. Indeed, we had this sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not have confidence in ourselves, but in God who does what? So he said, all the weakness that, that we were in back in Ephesus it was terrible. We despaired of life. We didn't think we were going to live through it. Like, it was more than we could handle. It was extreme weakness. Corinthian church. In weakness, we found his strength. We found the power of the resurrection in our life. So, Corinthians, I, my heart is fully open to you. And I'm going to show you, Corinthian church, through this whole letter, that all the weaknesses that you use as an accusation against my ministry actually has kept me humble and dependent on God because this is the gospel for the weak. Would you stand with me? We're going to sing to the Lord, pray, take communion, then we'll close out our time together. As our worship team comes up, would you bow with me? And by the way, when, when, um, while we're singing, communion will come around. This is for Christians, for God's people. Please take it if you're a Christian. Take it if you're a Christian who's owning up to your sin and repenting. I would warn you as a Christian, don't take this if you're nursing actively bitterness and unforgiveness towards others. Be careful about that. Can we go to him? Father, we need your help. I need your help. We all need your help. We are vulnerable. We are weak. We are weak to being hurt and growing bitter. God, may we see something in here. May we see a fresh vision of the crucified Lord, of a Lord who is putting his, not only taking on my sin, but putting, it, putting his righteousness on my account and has given me resurrection power, transcends what others can do, can forgive from the heart and keep offering the heart back up, does not protect but perseveres. God, help us to catch us. This is the gospel for weak people like us. For your renown and for your glory, and God's people said, Amen.